For a long time, I wanted to be an expert. I got my degree in economics. I saw a long career further studying this topic in more and more detail. But that's not the path I chose. After starting in academia, I felt constrained. I didn't want to focus all my energy on research and writing papers. Instead, I returned to the world of business, not because I knew it was the right path, but because I knew that economics was not. And instead of focusing on one area of specialization, I dabbled. I tried out a little bit of everything. I read books from a variety of disciplines. I considered multiple business ideas, trying to find different things that might work. It wasn't always easy. Many days I felt listless and unfocused. But ultimately, my long sampling period prepared me for something else, entrepreneurship. Launching a company has required me to pull from a broad range of skills and knowledge, skills and knowledge that I acquired over the course of many years. I never quite understood that connection between dabbling and entrepreneurship until I read the work of today's guest, David Epstein. David is a New York Times bestselling author, and he's written two books, The Sports Gene, and more recently, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David's going to help us understand the relationship between insight and experience. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene and Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. On this episode, David and Satyan discuss the power of generalization, the importance of exploration, and how businesses can create structures that encourage breakthroughs at their organizations. This podcast is brought to you by Elation. Elation enables people to find, understand, trust, and use data with confidence. Our data governance solution delivers trusted, certified data fast. As one customer said, quote, Elation is like Google search for your data. It helps identify what data we have and more importantly, how to properly make use of that data, end quote. Learn more about Alation at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. One of the reasons generalization is so important is that the modern world is more complex. You would think this means that we have to get really specific about our knowledge, but there's a huge premium to connecting seemingly unrelated dots. There are huge rewards to thinking differently and to building relationships between things that seem totally unrelated. Abstract thinking has become commonplace over the last two centuries. It's something that scientist James Flynn noticed when he realized that IQ tests were producing unexpected results. So James Flynn is a, uh, recently passed away, but was a political scientist who noticed that scores on IQ tests, so IQ tests are, are normed to 100, so that a score of 100 is always the average, but that the actual number of, of questions that people were getting right was going up over time, such that if, this, if the tests weren't renormed, it appeared as if humanity was gaining about three IQ points a decade over the course of the 20th century, which means that, like, you know, someone at the end of the 20th century is being tested looks like, you know, like they're as a whole different species from someone who would have been tested early in the 20th century. And, and it turned out what was going on was that it wasn't just that we are, you know, natively smarter than our grandparents and great-grandparents, but rather as as the work in society has gotten more kind of complex and and required more abstract thinking, 
that has changed the way people think. So the, the IQ test that had the biggest changes was this one called Raven's Progressive Matrices that was actually designed to be the one that would not have changes. So supposedly, as, as one paper wrote, this would be the test that if Martians landed on, on Earth, we could give them this and find out how intelligent they are because culture doesn't matter at all. And it's basically a series of abstract patterns and there's one missing. And you have to, just from looking at the patterns, figure out what the rules are and fill in the missing pattern. And so there was supposed to be no change on this. It was made to be, it's called a culturally reduced test. Nothing you learn in life should matter. And that's where the biggest gains were on this abstract stuff. And, and a long story short, it turns out that in this, we're living in this world now where we have to do a lot of what's called knowledge transfer. We have to take things that we learn and instead of, as our ancestors did more of, and as some kind of native populations still do, you know, we used to have very specific knowledge and do the same thing kind of over and over. And it was very important to have that, that knowledge. But now we're constantly in the, in the place of having to take our knowledge and apply it to problems we never have quite seen before. So relative to historical, our, our forebears, we're constantly being asked to apply our knowledge to slightly new problems and to new types of people. And that forces this shift of thinking that causes us to build more general models. So to categorize things, right? We may not know how to like do a lot of the things on a subsistence farm, and yet even toddlers start to begin to categorize the types of things that are on the farm in an abstract way, such that they would recognize another thing of the same category, even if they'd never encountered it before. And this kind of categorical thinking, or what Flynn called scientific goggles, has fundamentally changed human perception so that we are sort of more capable of, of generalizing and transferring our knowledge to, to new problems and novel problem solving. Our learning environments can play a big role in how we perceive things. Apparently, there are two types of learning environments, kind and wicked. I'll let David explain the difference between the two. The kind and, and wicked learning environment are terms coined by a psychologist named Robin Hogarth. And what Hogarth meant by kind learning environments were situations, domains where the next steps and goals are, are clear and they're given to you. Uh, rules are clear and they never change. Patterns repeat, so you can bank on repetitive patterns. Uh, feedback is quick and accurate. Usually not a lot of human behavior involved. Work next year will look like work last year. On the other end of the spectrum, and it is a spectrum, is the wicked learning environment where next steps and goals may not just be handed to you. You may have to figure them out. If there are rules at all, they may not be enumerated or clearly, or they may change without notice. Patterns don't just repeat. Feedback could be delayed or inaccurate. Human behavior is often involved, and work next year won't necessarily look like work last year. And what Hogarth was doing was trying to help with this debate that was going on in literature that studied how people develop expertise. And there was this, this conflict where some people who studied expertise found that individuals would get better with narrow experience, kind of just doing the same thing over and over. And others found that not only would they not get better, they would get more confident, but not better, which produced these really bad results. And it turns out that the reason these researchers were seeing different things about what happens with experience was that in kind learning environments, this more specialized experience does tend to make people better, but people are often mistaking wicked environments for kind ones and thinking that if they do the same thing over and over and over, they'll just get better. And that turns out not to be the case in these, these more dynamic situations. Which is true for individuals, but interestingly also true for companies, right? Because companies get big and scale and get better by doing the same thing over and over again, just slightly more efficiently. You know, once you find a differentiated product and service, the best thing you can do is to figure out how to drive the cost of delivery down to basis points, often within within whatever you're trying to do. 
But on the other hand, a lot of those businesses are quickly put out of business when some new revolutionary thing comes along. And, and so there's this duality of being able to or trying to hyper-specialize, but at the same time needing to generalize in order to stay alive so you don't miss the next turn. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, there's a deep literature on exactly what you just, (laughs) you described it more eloquently than I I would have. I'm glad you did that part. It called the explore exploit trade-off. When do you explore meaning looking for new ideas, new skills, new things to try, et cetera, and exploit being digging down and, and, and improving on the things that you already know. And there's actually a brand new, again, this, this is a study that pertains to individuals, but a great study that just came out in Nature, you know, one of the most prestigious journals in the world that looked at 26,500 scientists, artists, and film directors and found that their most impactful works in their life usually come clustered in a hot streak. And most people only have one, but lucky, sometimes lucky people have two. And that those hot streaks always followed a period of broader exploration where they were dabbling in a bunch of different things, you know, gaining a a little bit of skills here and there, and then putting it together and exploiting, just like you said. So it's like this period of sort of exploration, then you figure out what works, and then you drill into that. And I just thought, again, this study was about individuals, but it was the best of its kind and on over 26,000 practitioners. And I think it sort of echoes what what you just said. What I think is also interesting, though, is that people often confuse the two for each other. And so they, they think they're in a exploit environment when they actually should be in an exploratory environment. Is there any heuristic for how you know when you should be doing one or the other or how to even think about being aware or more aware of that trade-off? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great question. That's in some ways like the the reason why there's still so much literature on explore exploit is that I think it's I think it's difficult to tell. There, there are, I do think, though, that there's this wealth of literature on what's called self-regulatory learning that is is kind of about constellation of sort of habits of mind that people need to have to try to figure out when it's exploit time. And and basically, you know, I don't think I don't think we can we can say like well, you should spend x percent of the time doing explore, but people who are good self-regulatory learners, and I think this goes for adaptable organizations as well, have systematic reflection where they will be doing things and say, okay, here are my my abilities and interests, or here are our advantages right now. Here's what we're going to do now. And then maybe a year from now, we'll pivot because we will have learned something, you know, about ourselves and our opportunities and our chances. And they, they don't just leave this up to intuition, but have systematic methods of reflecting constantly to say, did that work how we thought? Did we find something unexpected? Is that something we can use or something that means we need to pivot in another direction? And you keep doing that kind of successively so that you move faster in this. Because I don't think we can say we know exploration phase will be done by X, Y, and Z unless it's an issue of like you're running, you know, you have no money left. And so then like that period is over. But I think these these reflective practices should be made systematic because I think the self-regulatory learning literature shows that we simply don't do it well enough or systematically enough where we're answering the same set of questions over and over after each thing we try. So we need to treat our our personal and work experiments more scientifically where we say, here are the questions I'm setting out. I'm going to come back and answer these same ones and then pivot based on what I learned. And so I think that's kind of the habit of mind that gives a successful approach. But also to add to what you said before this, you made me think of you know, you said like an organization will go into exploit mode and that works, but then they also get like disrupted because they get so much, so much tunnel vision. Even if your company is in exploit mode, you can still continue to explore by bringing in outside voices. This is one of the fundamental and underappreciated benefits of diversity and inclusion efforts. Like I read about Innocentive in Range, which was a spinoff uh, from Eli Lilly, where their director of research realized that, that they were 
even as big a company as they were, they were so in exploit mode that they had ceased to do the kind of exploration and, and were not solving problems that you would have thought like one of the best, you know, funded companies in the world would be able to solve. And so he proposed coming up with problems that wouldn't give away trade secrets, but they could just be like posted online for random people to solve them. And all his colleagues were like, that's ridiculous. Like we're, you know, we're organic chemists. Like we're going to put up this question and someone else who's not here is going to solve it. And so he said, well, then what's the harm? And so put those up. And it turned out that a third of those problems that had stumped Lily, uh, researchers started getting solved by people from other domains, you know, lawyers, like engineers, all these different people. It worked so well that he, the guy's name is Alf Bingham, that he spun it off into a separate company called Innocentive that helps other companies sort of post problems for outside solvers. And one of the best predictors of whether a problem will get solved is the diversity of people who start sending in answers. So they try to frame the question so that it brings in a very diverse diverse group of people. And so I think if you're clever about it and with things like data catalogs, even within your own organization, you can have, you, you can, you can take advantage of some of that explore by just getting different eyeballs on the same kind of stuff. And I think that's an important thing to do when organizations, especially when they're doing well in exploit mode, because that's probably when you're least likely to be sort of thinking about, you know, the kind of exploring that, that ensures the future. So there's this question then of kind of optimization versus discovery and kind versus wicked learning environments. And I think a lot of the time people get frustrated. You know, when you're exploiting, there's clear and obvious progress. And when you're sort of in this exploration mode, you could go long periods of time. I mean, I, in my career, went long periods of time reading books like, what do I want to do with my life? Because I just had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and dabbled all the time. How do you get people to sort of be comfortable with that success that maybe may not happen very often. One of the very true, but what would have been a much less marketable subtitle for range is that sometimes the things you can do that, that give you the fastest apparent kind of head start can actually undermine your long-term development. And I think that's true, whether it comes to developing a skill, whether it's choosing a career or developing a work project. And so if I think, if my read of the research is that Sometimes you actually need to do things that don't optimize the short term in order for the long term. And I think everyone realizes that to some extent, right? Like, do you want every company you're invested in optimizing only for the short term? No. Do you want like a national research agenda optimizing only for the short term? No. But I think it's harder on a, on a personal level because we're so attracted to, to head starts, basically. I write in range about Herminia Ibarra, who studies a, a London business school professor who studies work transitions. And one of the things she wants to kind of debunk is this idea that you like run into a phone booth, you know, as Clark Kent and rip off your suit and come out as Superman because work is part of identity, a huge part of identity. And identity doesn't change overnight. It changes kind of one little piece at a time. And so first, I think people should think about setting up low stakes experiments. You don't have to totally jump out of your job. What can you do that gives you a little insight into something different, into doing a project a little different way? Maybe it's just talking to someone with a different perspective. Maybe it's shadowing someone, whatever it is. You know, for me, I have the liberty to interview people in all these different things just because of my, you know, self-appointed job title of journalist. And so I think setting up low-stakes practice is an important one. Having a mindset where you're not, where, where you're also trying to improve your own match quality. So match quality is the term economists use to describe the degree of fit between what you're doing and your interests and abilities. And I think we should always be thinking about how we can triangulate better match quality, right? Is here, here's who I am, here are my interests and skills, here are my opportunities. 
I'm going to try this one now and then pivot based on that so that you're increasingly moving toward better match quality. Because it turns out that has a huge effect on your sense of fulfillment and your performance. It's also incumbent on managers to encourage exploration and to shoulder the risks when progress is slow or even non-existent. I think it's really on managers to underwrite some of that risk if they want people to explore because people will respond to those kinds of incentives, right? And this is what coaches do for great athletes who at a certain level, they need to start experimenting with their training to figure out how to get better because no one can tell you exactly at those high levels. You need to experiment. And so a coach underwrites that risk and says, look, we're going to walk this path together. And I think managers can do that for employees where they're showing that I'm in this with you. I'm condoning this risk and I'll accept some of the you know, the bureaucratic blowback if there is some, but I'm condoning this risk. I think that's a huge point because I think there is actually evidence that some places that say, oh, we want to give people exploration time, you know, they're 10% time or 20% time, that if there's not other stuff, other cultural signals, and it's just sort of mixed in with the normal time, they actually won't take it a lot of a lot of the time. That's sort of why I wrote about, you know, like these two uh, Nobel laureates uh, in, in the last chapter in range where I talk about how they had these times that they set aside for their lab just once a week where they'd say, well, one of them was an individual and one of them was a whole lab where they would say, okay, everyone do something that's like not funded. It can just be for pure curiosity. You can use other people's equipment. You won't be held accountable. This is the time where we do that. And they both ended up, you know, their Nobel prizes coming out of these, these, what they called Friday night experiments or Saturday morning experiments. And another great example of that, that I think can serve as an analogy is that you reminded me of from the sport of skeleton, which is one of the winter Olympics where people, they, they, you know, they push a sled and then they do like the disco move, the worm, and they jump on it and go face first down the ice, basically. And I remember spending some time with a Canadian coach who, he was practicing at a track with his with his guys one day, and the Americans came with all this fancy equipment. And he said, oh my gosh, like we can't compete with them. They have so much better stuff, accelerometers and everything. So guys, go in the start house where you practice dry land starts and don't come out until you've come up with something new because we need some other competitive advantage. These guys have been training for, you know, years in this event. And in t- they use two-handed starts. Two hours later, they come out of the start house and say, coach, can you use a one-handed start like a sprinter? Turns out you can. And suddenly they come out and rewrite the record book. It's short-lived competitive advantage because once they showed it, everyone had to do it. But it was guys who've been training for years were so stuck in doing it a certain way that took their coach saying, go in that other place for the next few hours and don't come out until you've done something different. And they you know, completely changed the sport overnight. So I think that's akin to this idea that you do need to designate that space for people to really believe in it and use it effectively. I want to go a little bit backwards. So it turns out that you and I both went to Columbia and um, we both experienced this thing called the core curriculum. The theory is that you're going to learn from all of these different philosophers and writers and schools of thought in music and art in order to be able to, um, you know, develop this range that'll allow you to approach the world. Is But then there are some people who are like, yeah, that was a total waste of time and I completely wish I'd never did it. Is everybody able to generalize or is that something that is different for different folks? I think we want everyone to have certain, like when we talked about the Flynn effect, Professor Flynn said, everyone for this kind of information deluge age that we live in, I think we want everyone to have certain, you know, problem solving abilities and and information sifting abilities that transfer across domains. That I think we do want for everyone, you know, that kind of scientific mindset, data literacy, Um, you know, one that I preach is Fermi estimation, which is when you're getting numbers, whether it's in the news or at work, the ability to break down a question into a lot of small pieces to make estimates, to understand if it, if it's even sensible at all or not. So I think there are certain skills that we do want everyone to have that they can apply no matter where, where they are. 
But I don't think we want everyone to stay generalist. I think we need a mix. I mean, the the way I I think about it is is like the way Freeman Dyson put it. You know, it was sort of like a, a a hero, an intellectual hero of mine. He was an eminent physicist, mathematician, and a wonderful writer. And as he said, if we want a healthy ecosystem, we need both birds and frogs. The frogs are down in the mud looking at all these granular details. The birds are soaring up above, not seeing those details, but integrating the knowledge of the of the different frogs. And he said, we need both. The problem, he said, was that we're increasingly telling people, everyone to be frogs. And therefore, we're not going to have these integrators. And I agree with that. I think we need, definitely need both. It's just, I think we tend to, all our advice tends to be, I, I agree with Dyson, that it tends to be for people to go be frogs. And so I think we've overweighted it in one direction. So while I do think that everyone, just to be like an informed citizen, should have a certain degree of kind of numeracy um, and, and problem-solving skills once we get into sort of what we're doing, because everyone specializes to one degree or another at some point or another. Like when I left science to, you know, end up a sports magazine, the scientists viewed me as, as right, the zigzagger generalist, whereas the people at the sports magazine viewed me as the specialist because of the science background. And so to some degree, it's semantic. I think we want this mix. I think we've just gone a little overboard on one side of it. That's all. It does seem to me that, you know, in a world where change is inevitable and people talk about, you know, capitalism as creative destruction, um, in that world, you want to get good at playing certain games, but you also want to know when the game has changed. Reed Hoffman, who's this, you know, famous entrepreneur, you know, at LinkedIn, uh, who founded LinkedIn, basically, you know, always says, you know, some entrepreneurs do really well, um, in a particular phase of a startup, but then they forget that the game has changed and then they just don't know how to play. And so some of that baseline thinking is required for adaptability in a world where the concepts are constantly different and and the the, the tools are different. I, I added recently to an afterward deranged that, that included some research in a dozen countries that actually matched people for their parents' years of education, their own years of education, their national test scores when they were available. The difference was some got more career-focused education and some got broader education, or at least some of these people had tertiary education and some didn't. And the pattern in 11 of the 12 countries was that those who got the broader education, they, they were a little slower to be hired uh, right out of, out of education. They did sometimes start at lower salary, but they ended up sort of losing the short term and winning in the long run because they were so much more adaptable that first of all, their growth rates became faster, but also when there were changes to their industry, they, they, they would often grow off of those as opposed to being like really set back by them. And so I think that made a strong argument that this broad base, you know, can this broader toolkit can really come in handy in faster changing environments. And in that study, the, the more rapidly changing the economy of a country was, the greater the lifetime advantage that accrued to the people that had that, that broader background. And you have a counterexample, which I think is just as interesting, which is almost in the failure of overspecialization. So you talk a lot about experts who forecast and some of the work that came off of what happens when experts hyper-specialize over time and whether their prediction accuracy is better or worse. Take us through that research, because I think it would be interesting for people to hear what the, what the downside scenarios look like. Yes, this was the most famous research ever done in, in forecasting, and it involved predictions being made over 20 years. So it was about 82,000 um, specific probability predictions with specific deadlines and hard questions. And it turned out that the worst forecasters turned out to be the most specialized experts. So people who'd spent like their entire careers studying kind of one or two problems 
and, and they would come to see the whole world through sort of one lens or mental model. The most specialized ones actually got worse at forecasting as they accumulated experience, which obviously is not what you, what you want. And when their forecast would go horribly wrong, they would, you know, for listeners who might have their, their Bayesian thinking hat on, they would correct in the wrong direction to say like, oh, I had this perfectly. If only this one other thing had gone, gone right, right? So, so they would really get wrapped up in one worldview. And that's not to say these people aren't useful because the people who were good predictors would go to these kinds of specialists who help create and unearth and make available new knowledge. They would go to them for facts, not necessarily opinions, and they would, they would integrate from all these, these different people. They were perspective collectors, or as the, the researcher who, who led the work described them, he said they have dragonfly eyes. So dragonfly's eyes are made of thousands of different lenses, each one of which takes a different picture, and those are then integrated in the dragonfly's brain. And he said that's what, that's, the people who were the good forecasters, sometimes they had an area of specialty, sometimes they didn't. But more important than what they thought was how they thought. They would go around and collect these perspectives and integrate them. Um, and those people did fantastically well. They actually... And then when they were put on teams of 12, those, those, those kind of dragonfly-eyed so-called super forecasters, they made each other 50% better in their individual predictions because they would collect information from one another and view their ideas as hypotheses in need of testing. So putting them in teams, they were good, they were good, uh, good teammates, even if they sometimes, you know, polite antagonism, like they, they argue, but, but in a civil way, and they outperformed without access to classify data, they outperformed a prediction market of intelligence analysts in the U.S. intelligence community who did have access to classify data by about 30% too. It went so well, they spun it off into a separate prediction-making business. Yeah, I love this idea of sort of um, many-sidedness or, or this, this imagery of a dragonfly eye. And it gets to this idea of almost empathy. And, and so you're never going to see the world in its fullness without looking at through other people's perspectives. So much of your work, and I said this earlier, so much of your work speaks to me because uh, you know, I, like a lot of my friends and family would have called me a dabbler and they would have said, ah, you know, you're just like doing this and you're doing this and you can't like keep your eye, you know, eyes or brain focused on a single idea at a single point in time. And, you know, I'd say for the first, you know, 20 years of my career, I sort of struggled with that. And I think, I think just hearing these stories for so many people who kind of go through that struggle of, of dabbling, like it's great to hear that there could be a phenomenal outcome at the end of that, uh, at the end of that at the end of that story. I referenced that nature study that just came out with the 26,000 plus individuals and how their periods of exploration preceded their, their sort of hot streaks at work. And that, that turned out to be at any age that they could have those hot streaks. And if you're a curious person, there can be dividends to that exploration phase, even at the same time as it's harrowing in terms of career progression. Exploration can be frustrating. It can feel tedious and you can burn out easily because there's a constant sense that you're not making progress but amazing things can come out of it. For me, the most powerful example of this is the life story of one of our greatest artists, Vincent van Gogh. His father was a minister, and his most famous sermon was one where he would preach about the sower of fields. He would say, think of all the, the short-sighted people who have, who have turned down fields that could have been planted if they just had the patience to do the work so that they could reap the rewards later. And Vincent, as a child, was sort of besotted by that, that image and had this incredible work ethic. And so at, at first he became, he was a very good student and he went away to a fancy boarding school and he, he did quite well, but, but he didn't really like being far away from home and living with strangers. So he left that. He wasn't sure what to do. Eventually his uncle who's starting this growing art dealership gives him a job. And, and he, Vincent would repeat this pattern that happened in every, every sort of professional path in his life pretty much for a while, where he would dive in with both feet, super enthusiastic, work like, you know, 
work until he dropped, would do really well, would get promoted and all these sorts of things, and then would start to flame out, would start to burn out, would start to flame out, you know, would start to have some personal conflicts. Something didn't work. And so that happened with the art dealership. So he, he left that. He goes, he becomes a teacher. That doesn't totally work. He's a tutor and he leaves that same thing. And he's a bookkeeper and he loves books and he actually saves the store one day by by moving just with physical endurance, armload of armload after book during a flood. But he has sort of higher ambitions. So he trains to be a preacher and he makes a hat with candles on it so he can study even at night. And he does well in some subjects, but Latin and Greek, he's just floundering in. He leaves that, goes to another training program to be a pastor, but he's no good at kind of the the TED Talk uh, short sermon and eventually decides he's just going to be an itinerant kind of preacher. And he goes to the coal country where his services are needed most. And he gets off to this great start, but again, basically flames out finds himself in his late 20s with kind of no possessions and no achievements to his name. And he writes this beautiful letter to his brother saying, what, you know, it seems like I'm being lazy because I don't know what to do, but it's actually, I I just haven't found the thing. And he likens himself to a, a bird in a cage in spring, seeing other birds fly by and knowing that there's something he's supposed to do, but not knowing what it is and banging his head against the bars of the cage and people looking and saying, you've got everything you need there. And him saying, I don't, like I need, I need freedom. I need to find who I'm supposed to be. And so he writes that letter and he picks up a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing, written for children, and starts drawing the life that he sees around him. And his very next letter to his brother is short. And he says, basically, I'm being brief. I'm drawing. I'd like to get back to it. And that's the start. That's where he finds in sort of his moment of deepest despair, the beginning of his life's path, which over the next decade leads toward all these artistic experiments where at one point he says, there's no such thing as color. Everything is a shade of black and he'll only paint with black. And then he says, there's no such thing as black. I won't even use black for the night sky. And he pinballs between all these experiments. And the last two years of his life arrives at this completely unique style that builds the bridge from classical to modern art. And so probably every Van Gogh you've ever seen, you know, anywhere on a screensaver or whatever, is, is from just that last two-year period where he sort of stopped his explore and, and started his exploit. And so both personally with finding a domain for himself, and then with his unique style, he went through these these sampling periods that were emblematic of some of the things I was writing about. If you could somehow see in me something other than some sort of idler, because there are idlers and idlers who form a contrast. There's the one who's an idler through laziness and weakness of character, through the baseness of his nature. You may, if you think fit, take me for such a one. Then there's the other idler, the idler, truly despite himself, who is gnawed inwardly by a great desire for action, who does nothing because he's imprisoned in something. He doesn't have what he would need to be productive. Such a person doesn't always know himself what he could do, but he feels by instinct, I'm good for something. I feel I have a reason for being. I know I could be quite a different man. For what then could I be of use? For what could I serve? There's something within me, so what is it? That's an entirely different idler. You may, if you think fit, take me for such a one. This was a letter written by Vincent van Gogh to his brother Theo in 1880. He was 27 years old at the time, and it would be another seven years before he would produce most of the masterwork that we all recognize. I can't think of a more inspiring testament to the power of exploration. So let's make sure we keep exploring. Let's make sure we keep dabbling. If you'd like to read more about Vincent van Gogh's letter, David writes about it in an excellent piece in his newsletter, Range Widely, 
at davidepstein.bulletin.com. Thank you again to David for joining us for this special episode of Data Radicals. This is Satyan Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Alation. Alation empowers people in large organizations to make data-driven decisions. It's like Google for enterprise data, but smarter. Hard to believe, I know, but Alation makes it easy to find, understand, use, and trust the right data for the job. Learn more about Alation at alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com.